Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and we have a phenomenal guest. We're going back to school today with Rob Phelan. Rob's a high school math and personal finance teacher in Frederick, Maryland, so not far from us here. He's a certified financial education instructor, a business owner, and the author of the recently published children's book, Emma's for Money. Rob is a passionate advocate for greater levels of financial education to help our youth make better financial decisions moving into their futures, and it's time to go back to school. Rob, welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate. Hey, Eric, thank you so much for having me, and welcome everyone to school. Yes, I am broadcasting from my uh, high school classroom while I'm on my planning period, so it is great to join you in the middle of the school year. That's fantastic, and if we if we happen to hear a bell ring in the background, it'll take us all back to many years ago. I don't know if that even still happens in a schoolhouse. Oh, but it, 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 it does, it does, and I apologize if it does ring, but yes. No, no, don't apologize, right that back. sound... Don't apologize. That sound is going to take me back to a, a different age, <laughs> a different time, so I don't mind at all. Well, let's dive right in because math and personal finance are not the same thing. Um, clearly, math has lots of uses well beyond just just finance, but a lot of people are frightened by personal finance because of the math. Can you talk a little bit about how the two uh, work together, but also how that can create angst for young people and, frankly, for folks of all ages? Yeah, and um, I think math and personal finance do share a lot, um, both in terms of the mechanics, you know, of handling money and the the mathematical side, but also in the preconceived notions people have about the topic itself and their own abilities around the topic. So I think math is one of those classes where, unlike maybe a geography or an English or a history, you'll have people come in and they'll say, well, I don't have the math gene. Like no one says, I don't have the English gene or I don't have the science gene. Like it's usually math is the one that we hear this. And it comes from our experiences in youth, um, particularly what our parents have modeled for us, what they have said to us, maybe some of the things that we have been exposed to prior to um, coming into a class like this. And money is sort of the same thing that our environment that we grow up in is going to have a huge impact on what we know about money and also what we believe about money and what we believe about our own abilities when it comes to money too. So yeah, I think it's a it's a very um, astute observation that you have there that there is a lot of similarities here. And uh, it's, it's a challenge um, for all of us who are going to learn about money, particularly if we're going to be a financial educator, that we are going to have kids, adults, teachers, whoever you're talking to, with a lot of we'll call it baggage, a lot of past experiences coming in around money that you have to kind of dig into, which is why usually I start with what's your money story. So what have, what have you experienced about money already? What lessons have you learned about it? What emotions come up when you think about money? And then we can start to break those down and maybe confirm some beliefs and try and toss out other ones. As human beings, we tend to overestimate our ability at lots of things. For example, if you went into a room with 200 adults and you said, how many of you are above average drivers? You know, 190 of the 200 hands would go up and the other 10 were on their phone not paying attention. We all think we're better than (laughs) average drivers. 
which of course you know mathematically is not possible. There's a bell curve like everything else. But I would think math is one of those things, and money especially, where we tend to underestimate our ability, where people just say, oh, I'm not good at that, and therefore they avoid it or, or shun it or uh, delegate it, just be, maybe even before they've tried, because they just have those beliefs that come from either childhood experience or watching their parents fight about money or any of those other kinds of things that they're just not good at it. How is it that money specifically, math in general, but money specifically are absolutely the antithesis of everything we do as humans. We all think we're better than average at everything. We're better than average singers, at least in the shower. We're better than average athletes. We're better than average drivers, but we're not good at math. Oh, and it's like, I, I will, I'll push back on that as well. I'll measure my students before we do a class and afterwards as well. And I'm actually always genuinely surprised at how good they think they are at money. So like students will be like, yeah, I understand money. I know how it works. I get it, all that stuff. What they don't believe in usually is their ability to do better and to become wealthier, to be good money managers. So like, yeah, I get how it works. I'm just going to be stuck at this level for the rest of my life. And it's one of those things that the more you learn about it, the more you realize there's so much more out there. It's that paradox of the more you know, the less you know. Uh, I think that does definitely apply to money. At least I know it did in my own experience as well. I was like, yeah, I got a decent command of what this money thing is. And then once I started learning about it, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. There is so much more to learn, particularly if you want to um, teach it, if you want to get on a path to financial independence. Like there's always more you can learn, more ways to optimize but getting a grasp of the basics is something we certainly can do as well without a ton of time and effort involved. But I, it, it is, it's weird how so many things we overestimate our ability. Oh, there it is. But it is that weird. That is not how, the bell I remember. <laughs> it's a, it's I a remember one bell. That, it's not, it's not yeah. like a, an actual physical bell out in the hallway that's a little bit more like jump and very yeah. intimidating sounding. It's, it's now second period. <laughs> yes. But you're, you're totally right in that we're, we're very weird in how we estimate our abilities, particularly compared to others. This is one of those scenarios where I think we all just have an incorrect, potentially, assumption of how good we are at money. And you, met, you look at the statistics of financial literacy in the U.S., the average adult cannot pass a, fa a basic financial literacy exam. Uh, we rank 15th in the world um, in terms of nations for financial literacy scores, despite having the... I think second highest wealth per capita um, in the world. So it's interesting how like we have so much money, but we're not very good at managing it compared to other countries or compared to even our peers around us sometimes. So where, where does the curriculum come from for the personal financial literacy education you're doing? Because, um, you know, I've had lots of conversations with leaders at our state capital in Annapolis, uh, with teachers unions, with lots of different groups to try and figure out what it would take to get um, a, a true personal financial literacy course as part of our graduation requirements. And different districts, different counties have made it, made it possible. And certainly some of the private schools have done it and some have not. So there's no real standard. And then every state has their own plan. So what is, what is the curriculum? Is there such a thing as an ideal personal financial literacy curriculum? Or is it really just a, a math uh, unit that's converted into, into dollars and cents? Welcome to the world of education, where it is just that question of, hello, uh, what, what's going on here? Who's doing what? What are the standards we're trying to achieve? Um, with math, for example, there is a set of national standards that most states try to adhere to, and then every state will build their 
curriculum of instruction to try and meet those standards. For personal finance, it's still very much in its infancy. Um, we're seeing states every you know couple of weeks now are passing legislation saying, yes, we're going to make personal finance a one semester graduation requirement for high school students to graduate. And all of those states are now trying to figure out, well, how do we do this? What are we going to do? What do we need to put in place? And curriculum is definitely one of those things. There are national standards out there from different organizations, but there isn't really any generally accepted standard across the country for what kids should know about personal finance. So what happens is most states or most school districts will look for um, nonprofit organizations or private organizations who are producing curriculum, who have produced their own standards and say, okay, we'll, we'll adopt these as our standard of use. So we'll have the National Council for Financial Educators has their own set of standards, which are great. Jumpstart has their own. Junior Achievement has their own. NextGen Personal Finance um, produces great curriculum with their own standards. Some states will just assemble their own and do their own thing. It depends. And what we would love to see is a more generally accepted standard for financial education. Um, so I hope that we are going to move that way, particularly in Maryland. And thank you so much for also advocating for uh, better personal finance in our state because it certainly is needed. It seems like all these nonprofits who, who do great work, and I'm, I'm very familiar with Junior Achievement. I'm a big fan. I love what they do. But it sounds like they're all recreating the wheel. They're all coming out with something that's designed to, to reach the same end, but the means to the ends are all different. And that means there's going to be a disconnect between sort of the, the 10 things you must know about money before you graduate, so to speak, and the way in which it's being presented. And I don't mean where every teacher has their own, maybe their own style. That's different. But I'm talking about the actual, the actual nuts and bolts of what needs to be learned. So if we had to start from scratch today, and we had to pick, uh, you know, the best of Jumpstart and the best of Junior Achievement and the best of the National Council and all these different places. Where does that eventually reside? How, how do you figure out who, for lack of a better word, owns that content or has created that content? Is everybody trying to take credit for this themselves? Is there some ego happening or am I, am I off base? Um, it's funny because I worked with Chooseify, which is a, another podcast um, very big in the financial independence space, and they have a nonprofit called Chooseify Foundation. And I was the lead curriculum writer for high school, so we actually created our own personal finance curriculum that was going to be freely available for schools. So we also entered that space, and we did so with the idea of, well, let's try and find the best of what's out there and put it all in one spot. And you're right, there is just so much out there, and everyone is kind of putting their own spin on it. There's different areas of prioritization. There's different activities, games. Um, there's different ideas behind what needs to be learned. Is it more about financial literacy? Is it more about mindset, beliefs, values? Um, so kind of more of a holistic personal finance sort of class. It, it's very varied. And sometimes it even comes down to the individual teacher and what they are particularly interested in teaching because a lot of this has fallen down on the individual teacher to be creative and go find stuff themselves. So I would say it's less of an ego and more of lots of nonprofits really trying to serve this space. There are more private organizations starting to produce their own curriculum. I think particularly as they see school districts adopting this graduation requirement, they're seeing the dollar signs now where they can move in and provide something that states will pay for versus the nonprofits were all kind of just doing it for free or at a very low fee for the most part. I will say there's very little bad curriculum out there for the most part. Like it's it's good stuff. It does require a lot of picking through 
to find things that work for you, work for your students, work for their experiences, their beliefs about money. But you can't really go too wrong um, with any of them. My personal favorite at the moment is NextGen Personal Finance. That is a totally nonprofit one. Again, they have a wonderful team. They provide great training for teachers, which is the part that I really love. So there's a lot of on-demand and virtual um, content that you can do to train yourself up as a teacher so that you can learn more about personal finance and how to deliver it to your students. I don't work for them or get anything for that. So that's just a user perspective that they're my favorite so far. But I know great things about junior achievement and jumpstart as well. One of the big pushbacks that we got and we ran into, because I, I mean, I've even testified before the state Senate to try and make this happen. One of the big pushbacks we got was that teachers, number one, didn't know this stuff well enough to teach it. Because let's face it, they also didn't get this education as kids. It's not like they, they learned it and they just have to hone their skills. They never learned it either in a lot of cases. And so a lot of their habits might not be very good. So teachers were hesitant to take on a curriculum that they really didn't know themselves. And it sounds like you've, you've found some good sort of train the trainer programs out there, which is important. The other thing was then you get into the idea that, well, teachers are number one, being asked to teach so many different subjects and they're asked to do so many different things. And ultimately they're being judged by test scores that the kids receive as opposed to sort of a well-rounded education. And since this isn't on the test, so to speak, that creates a strange conflict too. How much of that are you seeing, um, at, you know, from your perspective, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I presume you probably have some colleagues, at least around the state, if not uh, even in your own building, who are having those thoughts too. Yeah, and um, I've heard pushback as well about there are so many other I guess, subject areas that are also pushing for graduation requirement status, like um, environmental protection is one that comes to mind, and that if you grant a graduation status to personal finance, how do you say no to the other ones? And then if you say yes to all of them, there just isn't enough time in the day to do all these things. Our school system at the moment does prioritize mathematics, science, English, a foreign language, you know, as a very high level graduation requirement. And then you have elective courses, which usually um, a kid has to pick maybe three to seven credits of electives to graduate during their high school career. And they kind of get to pick and choose between those. There's no real um, pathway they have to take. So if you're going to introduce personal finance as a graduation requirement, you have the challenge, of course, of training the teachers. So very few teachers, as you said, have had any formal instruction on this. Most adults don't. Teachers in particular are not getting this in their grad school programs or in undergraduate programs. So we're sending you know, teachers out into the world who are not particularly well paid um, you know, based on what they put into their career and how educated they are. And then they also don't know how to build wealth for themselves or how to pass that on to their students. So I do think that's a place to start is just like, let's start helping teachers to understand their own money a little bit more. And by just them knowing a little bit more, they'll probably just start passing that on to their students in little bits and pieces. So that's a place to just start without making a formal graduation requirement. But as you said, like there are other challenges too. They, finding the space for it is probably the one that most school districts are struggling with. They already have like this filled schedule. As a teacher, I know that I'm already crunched to get all of my math content fit into an entire semester and get students prepared for the test um, that we do have to take that the school gets measured on, students get measured on. Um, it's a very competitive environment when it comes to getting into college and where GPA and SAT scores and your MCAP scores are gonna be so important. So it does require a mindset shift that 
we don't want that for personal finance. We don't want to test the life and the fun out of it. This should be something that we learn out of genuine curiosity and interest and not something that we should have to measure to death, if that makes sense. Like my favorite part of teaching the personal finance class I have right now is that it is a math class, but there's really no formal testing that goes with it. It's a class that I teach differently every single time I do it because I get to just follow the interests of my students and we get to go down these meandering paths. We get to see what's happening in the news and make that a topic of conversation. And it's it's so fun to do that. Like this past fall, we must have spent probably two weeks exploring the idea of blockchain and NFTs because it was just so topical. It was in the news. The kids were really interested in it. They wanted to know more about why these ape characters kept appearing on their news feeds. And that's something that you wouldn't be able to do in a very regimented course where there's a test you have to worry about at the end. So I, I really don't want to see that happen if personal finance does become a graduation requirement. I don't want to see it tested to death. I love that because I agree with you. This should be something that's that's perceived as fun and a life skill as opposed to yet another standardized uh, test. You also brought something else up that I think is probably the 500-pound gorilla in the space, which is who decides what is mandated in curriculum and, and what isn't. I've heard zero people say that personal financial education is a bad idea. Absolutely zero. Everyone I've ever spoken to says, what a great idea. And it's always followed by sort of the big but. But we don't want legislators or we don't want our elected officials to legislate curriculum because it's a slippery slope. Because what everybody agrees is a good idea today in two years or four years or six years when there's a different legislature, now you have politicians deciding what, what, which direction to go and to legislate additional curriculum and invariably you can, you can muddy the water very quickly just by having ideas that maybe don't belong in a classroom or that not everyone's going to agree on. And you know you, you brought up the environmental piece. I, I don't know anyone who would say that's a terrible idea. We should learn about that. And there's a hundred other things just like it. The problem is how do you pick and choose and who do you want making that decision and do you really want that to be politicized? And that's why this has been so, so tough. I, I never expected to run into uh, such a difficult set of challenges around something that was, I thought, universally liked. It's bizarre. Of course, and it's like, it makes sense. Why is this so hard to do when it makes sense? And that just seems to be, I mean, our education system, our political system, like it's not, it's not always common sense or it's not always as simple as it seems. There are so many different things that you have to navigate and the, the education system in general is this just giant ship that is very difficult to change direction on. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's mind-boggling at times. It's frustrating at times. Um, I've had that fantasy as a teacher of what would school look like if you made it optional, if you took the testing away and every kid and every teacher was there because they just simply wanted to learn. Like how many kids would still show up? What would they learn about? What would the level of learning be like? Would we have a more prepared workforce um, as a result of this? Or would it would laziness and the easy way out dominate? Like, do we need the legislation there to make sure that everyone is kept accountable and things go the way they're supposed to go? I'm not sure about the answer to that. I, I know from my own personal like view of the world and my own personal bubble that I think that we would have a more holistic, fun education system that kids really bought into, but I, I don't know for sure. Um, we do legislate the way we do because our powers that be have decided that to produce a workforce that is going to 
advance our country, is going to produce the most, in quotation mark, productive citizens, uh, is going to require ones that are more educated in the areas of math, science, technology, good command of communication and English skills. So those are the areas that we prioritize in school and we have done for decades. And once you put it in there, it's kind of hard to take it out again. So I want to shift gears and talk about your book because um, there aren't, I don't think, very many children's books around money. Money and children aren't often talked about except in the way that, that money and children are the two things married couples fight about the most. So you've, you've written a book called M is for Money, which makes me, I, I can't not channel Cookie Monster. And I know that's because 45 <laughs> years ago I was watching and C is for Cookie was something that just stuck with me. So um, tell us about M is for Money and, and where you came up with the idea and a little bit about it. And then, of course, where folks can get it and who it's for. Okay, so this requires going back to when I started writing the curriculum for Chooseify. We started with what are the skills that we think a high school student should know upon graduation to become a adult who is capable of making good financial decisions, finding information that they need, and so on. And then we started backward mapping it down through the different grade levels. And we got to middle school. We were like, we can go earlier than this. There are things we can learn in elementary school. We got to elementary school. And we're like, you know what? There's, there's earlier in this. The research is showing that kids are able to understand basic money concepts from around age three, and they do start learning about money from home through observation, conversations, experiences. And if we don't think about it consciously in some way, we're missing this huge learning opportunity and this potential space where we can influence the habits and mindsets kids have about money from a very early age so that they just go forward with this positive mindset about money and they understand how it works. They ask good questions. They know how to seek out information. They feel very comfortable talking about it rather than having to kind of unwind all of those negative associations and taboos about money when they get to their 20s and start trying to figure out money. So we wanted to go younger. And like you said, there wasn't a lot of money books out there for young kids. Um, I can think of like one Bernstein Bears book that was around probably when I was a kid. Um, there's a Dr. Seuss book. Um, it was like one cent, two cents. It was just like a, a play on the one fish, two fish book. That was about it. Um, and my son was born, he's two and a half now. So when he was born, I was like, okay, we're going to try and do this money education thing from a young age. We love books. He loves books. What's out there. And there just wasn't a lot out there. And most of what is out there is published by independent authors. So they're actually hard to find and hard to find good books. So I was teaching an entrepreneurship class at the time and this kind of came together and I wanted to show the kids how to produce a business idea where you don't have to put any of your own money into it. You basically pre-sell the entire value. And I had this kid's book in my head to help young kids learn basic money words, build their vocabulary, encourage conversations with adults about money. And it just ended up being this great opportunity to say, all right, let's do this. Let's bring out a kid's book that is going to have money words in it. It's going to teach kids basic concepts about money and it's going to encourage adult conversation and we're also at the same time going to do it using kickstarter to crowdfund the book coming out so there was there was two motivations behind it one was the altruistic bringing out a book the other was let's show these entrepreneurship um, kids so these 10 to 18 year olds how do you pre-sell an idea and crowdfund it um, so that was the genesis of emma's for money it was two two lenses that i was looking at there the Let's make the world a better place with better money education. And then also let's show kids how this can be done. At what age can young people, if at all, 
start to think about things around behavioral finance. Because it's, it's one thing to understand how to balance a checkbook. Not that people do that in, a, in an analog way anymore, generally. But you can figure out how to use a software package or a spreadsheet or a calculator. But at what point can you start teaching some of the behavioral finance that, that really is psychology? Are middle schoolers and high schoolers able to, to grapple with that? Or is that really more of a college-level type of, of topic? It actually can go pretty young. Um, different ideas start at different ages. So if you're looking at um, child development, I had a really interesting email conversation with um, Daniel Pink after his book, The Power of Regret, because he showed in his study that people start learning the feeling of regret around six or seven years old. And I, like, I sent him a message and like, kudos to him. He like answered it. I did not think he would. But um, I asked him, like, so based on that, would it be fair to say that kids can start learning about buyer's remorse and regret around spending around that age, too? And um, he said, like, you know, really interesting idea. Yes, that would that would probably be the indication. So you can start having these conversations with your kids around seven, eight years old where you're letting them make purchases and then you're just breaking it down with them to ask them, well, how do you feel about it? Do you think that was a good purchase? Would you do it again? Is there anything you would do differently? So thinking about being mindful around how we spend our money, which is a huge part of behavioral finance, that you are aware of your own thought processes going into making buying decisions and how you react afterwards, how you feel about money, your relationship with money. So we can start doing things like that from a pretty young age, getting kids to be patient and delay gratification, which is something that most of us adults could really learn a lot more about as well. Like We start teaching those things from an extremely young age. Prime example of that, uh, last week I was out with my son at a, a children's festival thing and there was a food truck there that was selling ice cream and we had talked about getting ice cream beforehand. He saw the food truck. He's like, yes, I want to get ice cream from that food truck. And it was the only ice cream truck there. It was a warm day and the line was significantly long. So I'm looking at that like, ugh, this is going to be a long wait with a two-year-old uh, <laughs> who has not learned a lot of patience yet. But also, instead of taking the easy way out and saying, oh, we'll just go get ice cream on the way home or we'll pick it up from the grocery store, or whatever like that. I said, OK, if we choose to do this, we're going to have to wait for it. We're going to have to line up. We're going to have to be patient. And then we will be able to get our ice cream. And he said, yes, of course he did. He had no idea what he was signing himself up for. But we practiced. We got in the line. We checked in like every couple of minutes as he was starting to get a little bit you know, antsy about being in line. We're like, you know, we're waiting. Uh, we're moving forwards. You can see us making progress. And let's think about that ice cream that we're going to get at the end and how great that reward is going to be. And we just kept reinforcing that idea that we were doing a great job being patient. This was a positive experience and there was going to be this big reward at the end that we were really excited about. And then once we finally did get to the front, you know, we gave him the cash, we let him order, we let him um, you know, get the ice cream, brought it back. And then we broke down. That was really hard. We did a great job waiting. Uh, we were patient, and now we've got this really great ice cream afterwards. How do you feel? And just that same idea of drawing their attention inwards to how did that whole experience make them feel? Was it positive? Was it negative? And he was like, he basically said, it was hard, but I like ice cream. And um, <laughs> well, that was the that was like a first lesson, and that's what we should be thinking about our kids. Like, how can we put them in these scenarios where we can teach them to be patient and to practice delay gratification? And then we just keep building those up to all these adult skills that you. We're alluding to as well. I think you just created something called ice cream theory. 
I think you should probably <laughs> dig into this. Um, we're we're running low on time here, and I, and I, I got to ask you um, the sort of the million dollar question, which you haven't been asked since you were not much older than your two year old, which is, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's what's out there for you? When I grow up, yeah, I'm I've, I'm definitely one of those people who has developed a very strong growth mindset. Um, probably in my 20s, I started really developing. I didn't feel like I had it much when I was a kid. And I thought when I locked myself into being a teacher, oh, well, that's it, I'm grown up, I'm a teacher, this is all it's ever going to be. And since finding like the financial independence community, it's just this, this world of opportunity that being financially independent can bring to you. So my wife and I are working towards financial independence and that's just, yeah, what's the next chapter? What are you gonna do when you grow up? And for me, I think it's going to be a lot of traveling to local schools, local nonprofit organizations, and teaching parents, kids, teachers about money. It brings me a lot of joy. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I can't see myself ever just kind of sitting down and doing nothing. I'm a very creative person. I like solving problems. I like building things. So yeah, I, I just want to keep learning. I want to keep growing. I want to build my skill set. Um, not for any purpose, like making money, but more so just because it fills me and makes me feel good. So I hope that's what most people think about when they think about the next stage. Like, what's going to make you fulfilled and happy? Well, and, and everybody's different. And, you know, mm -hmm. when you're seven, you want to be a pro football player or an astronaut or a ballerina or something. And um, now I think it's it's really about finding joy in your life and finding purpose. And it sounds like you've found yours. And I, and I, I give you um, uh, not only credit for finding it, but for working toward it. That's amazing. We are at that spot in our show where we need an extra credit assignment. And I, I know you're a math teacher. I refuse to accept homework on this show, so you may not give our audience homework. But you can give an extra credit assignment, which is sort of the one takeaway from today um, that folks can use from having spent a half an hour with us and, and deciding what the next step is for them. What is your extra credit assignment for our audience today? It's the same extra credit assignment I give my students. Now, there's no formal extra credit involved with it, but I do challenge them this at the beginning of the year. Uh, one of the best pieces of advice and I guess life slash learning moments that I can look back on was, um, I must have been 21 at the time, and a friend of my dad's, very strong mentor kind of figure, he stopped me and said, what do you want? And was talking about future career at the time. Um, and he's like, well, what do you want? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? What problems do you want to solve? And I hadn't really thought about it much, so I gave an answer. And then he's like, okay. What, what's the first step to doing that? And that was it. It was just like, oh, what's the first step? Not what are all the million steps you have to do to get to this, but what's the first step you need to take to get you towards where you want to be? And that can be career, it can be um, financially, it can be teaching your kids or being a better parent or helping out your community or learning a new skill, like whatever it is, what do you want and what's the first step to getting it? And if you think through those two things at home, you are on a pathway to getting to where you want to be take that first step and then once you do that what's the next step and if you keep doing that you will keep moving towards your goals rob where can folks get a copy of your book uh, you can find emma's for money on amazon barnes and noble bookshop you can go to emmasformoneybook.com it's very easy if you google it as well Perfect. Well, you get an A plus for your for your assignment today. You did great. Uh, I thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I wish you continued success. And just as importantly, I, I keep spreading this word because you're you're going to bring a lot of people closer to financial independence and financial freedom just by sharing these 
these important topics with them. So thank you for all you're doing, Rob. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to come and talk to you and your audience. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Don't Retire, Graduate. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate our podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Please also check out our books, workbooks, and online financial literacy resources at BrotmanMedia.com. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, let us begin changing the way we view retirement. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at BrotmanMedia.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.